<laughs> Jamel. Wow, Casey. Wow. We, we just got off the most powerful discussion I have had in a very long time. I felt like I've just learned so much about my own experiences mm. talking with our next two guests. How are you feeling about that, Casey? I just think, you know, from the moment I got to campus two and a half years ago, you know, we we were talking with today, Dr. Trisha Lynn and Dr. Siobhan Carter-David, um, and the two of them are have been leaders for me and, and mentors for me, always creating warm, welcoming spaces. And so they've been visible and present to me uh, from the moment I got here. And I've never had a conversation with either one of them where I didn't come away thinking about something differently. And this is absolutely no different. And we get to have you here too. So, you know, I always leave a conversation feeling more alive, more enriched. Um, and now we get to do that and share it. Very much. that I feel like that conversation energized me for this work. Because this work can be tiring, but that conversation <laughs> definitely added some fuel to my tank. And I hope it adds fuel to all your tanks that are listening. You are all in for a tremendous treat. Yep. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. All right, so hey, Jamil. Hello, Casey, how are you? I'm doing great. We have two of Southern's most well-respected, beloved, and hardworking faculty members, professors here today. Um, we have Professor Siobhan Carter-David from the History Department, Associate Professor. And we have Trisha Lynn, Dr. Trisha Lynn, full professor and director of the Women's and Gender Studies program here at Southern. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. We are super excited to have today's conversation, especially in celebration of Women's History Month. So we invite, we had to invite both of you on to talking about women of color experiences in higher education and talking about women's rights. And so we're so happy and thankful to have both of you on. We know you have busy schedules. So I just wanted to first express my deepest gratitude for having you on. And you know, speaking of this, you know, hardworking, it's Women's History Month. It was just Black History Month. And I think that especially for students, there's a whole lot that professors do um, that maybe students don't realize are happening. Certainly, even I as a faculty member, I'm realizing more and more like, oh, wow, this, this being an academic, being a scholar is way bigger than teaching in the classroom. That's the center. Um, but I'm wondering if you all would share some of the things that you are up to or things that you do around campus that perhaps people don't know that you do? I'd like to say there's a lot of invisible labor um, yes. in a faculty's life, particularly in a faculty of color's life or marginalized faculty's life. So in my case, in addition to directing the program, teaching my classes, serving on campus committees, I do a lot of advising. That's part of my work, and that's also not part of my work. Right. So advising uh, students that are currently in the program and mm -hmm. not in the program, people seek me out. Uh, I'm sure this is the case with you, Siobhan, and with you, Casey. Students, yep. they just email, they want to talk. Partly because of, uh, you know, my profile as an Asian American faculty, faculty of, of color on campus. So that's what I do. And, and I want to say the work doesn't really end after students graduate. I get a lot um, of WGS alum that continue to stay in touch with us with me in particular, only because I, I'm the director, I'm the one and only 100% you know, faculty in women's and gender studies. So that's the stuff people don't 
quite see, and sometimes I stop seeing myself because it becomes so the part of uh, right. um, what I do. Um, and honestly, so very often I stop counting, you know, what, what is, what is not part of my work, what is. So uh, life becomes work, work becomes the life. I'll stop here and let you one add. No, I agree with you. Um, they say, if you love what you're doing, it never feels like work. <laughs> but on the other side of that, it, it can be overwhelming sometimes. Absolutely. So yes, I agree. Students see us teaching. They don't see the research and writing that goes into publishing. Sure. The extensive amount of hours that go into committee work to keep our mm -hmm. shit governance running at a university that's uh, unionized like ours is. And then as Trisha mentored, the count mentioned the countless hours of mentoring, that's what I was trying to say, um, of mentoring both formal and informal. Formal in the sense that students might be in your class, they may be in your program. Um, there's some students I've worked with through SEOP, but then there's other students who it's it's informal kind of, of work. Mm -hmm. and, and then another thing that happens a lot, particularly around Black History Month, Women's History Month, is that you're asked to speak to issues that might be outside of your research area, but firmly yeah. and squarely rooted in your teaching interests. And so oftentimes that requires a certain level of polishing up you have to do for presentation. Mm -hmm. So that, that takes time and it takes work and it happens at Southern and it happens out in the community. I love how you both touched on that invisible labor and I love that you defined that term for us. It's a term I haven't really heard before this conversation, but I think it describes perfectly what mentorship and diversity work on campus looks like. It's labor that's not counted in your paychecks. It's not something that is used in your, you know, you moving up in the ranks. It's it's labor that is love intensive, labor intensive, emotionally intensive, mm -hmm. but deeply needed in our community especially when we're talking about faculty of color. For students of color, especially when we're not having a diverse faculty, seeking out the little faculty we do have of color and latching on for mentorship and looking up to our faculty of color that we can see ourselves in. That I could imagine from a faculty perspective is a little overwhelming. I could really see that the um, impact of that invisible labor must have over time. Can I? Also, add, there's the other kind of invisible labor, um, and all these, all the invisible labor, you know, comes with um, a lot of uh, emotional tolls. So there are times we just need to sort of uh, uh, some zen moment. But this one, I have never. I, I don't know how to talk about this except to say. Um, my passion for social justice, for, for, for justice issues. Um, I don't see us rest. So in that regard, I would uh, do program, do programs, uh, organize things, network with uh, campus entities and entities off campus uh, for issues of uh, tremendous importance to our world and one of which is talking about white privilege, white supremacy. Mm -hmm. The issues that I've started, well, I'm not alone, but I I remember, you know, about 10, 15, maybe 10, 12 years ago when I, when, when I uh, joined hands with uh, Gary uh, Winfield to work on it, we faced a lot of resistance. And, but that resistance kind of became a you know, fuel to the work that we, we, we considered really important. It, you know, the work, no doubt, is very important. So that's the work that's not in my job description. So mm -hmm. that no one is asking me to really, you know, take on white, white supremacist, you know, ideology. Um, but it is part of my whole package right the kind of scholarship i do the kind of uh, teaching scholarship i do it's all part of it and yeah so that that's that that's ongoing and and that's uh that's 
kind of 24-7, right? You, you breathe, you live, you eat with it, you dream with it, and you, um, you know, you network for it as well. Thank you for sharing that. That I think is a reality for so many of us marginalized folks, right? Mm -hmm. We do not have the luxury of treating social justice and activism as a hobby, right? For us, activism is the difference between life and death, right? It's the difference between access and no access. So for many of us, especially people that are working professionals, there's that duty that you're called to, to serve your community and to speak out for your community, not because you necessarily want to or you're comfortable doing so, but because you have to for others and for yourself. And I think that is a weight in which we don't talk about often in higher education, how much emotional labor goes into advocating and trying to justify to others why you exist why you deserve to be in this space and why others need to pull the boot off of your neck. And I think that's something we don't talk about often as we should, because often as marginalized folks, we have to educate people that are actively oppressing us on why they should not be oppressing us. And that is invisible labor. And I, I'm so in love with that term now. I'm going to be using it all the time. I'll we say that. find a way to make invisible labor count, though. We, we need to oh, yes. that. <laughs> you know, with the invisible labor too, though, I'll say that both of you are very visible always on campus. You know, from the moment I, I got to campus, I was seeing you in all of the spaces. You seem to know more people than, than most. And that, I think that is that, that networking and the, and the fact that, and this week, especially, I mean, folks who are listening can probably hear the heaviness of this week, um, just in the tone of our conversation. Um, but it's only really possible to sustain in a collective. Um, and Trisha, that's that's one thing that I've seen, you know, from you is just how much of that community building that you do, that networking is kind of a funny word, but connecting people, connecting people, sustaining, um, creating joyful spaces um, as a form of resistance. Um, and I know, Siobhan, you also engage in practices of of joy and connection, um, both as a teacher and scholar, activist, feminist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, they say that everyone contributes to trying to make the world better in different ways. And one way that I realized over the years working with my personality is building community because I'm quick to throw an event together, quick to have everybody, you know, well, now we have, we're in the pandemic. But I think it's important to do that in my women's spaces. It's important to do that in my um, Black spaces. Um, I've done that in a, a variety of different ways on campus, uh, getting Black faculty and staff together. Um, I do it so much with women colleagues and friends that I can't even pinpoint a time. It's just part of what we naturally do. Um, because people need to feel comfortable and need to feel safe. Um, and then after that, survival pieces taken care of, then you can do the other stuff. And so part of that is knowing that folks are here for you and we're accessible. I would like to add why I talk about invisible labor, why we sort of uh, talking about the toll. I also want to say there's so much joy echoing Chauvin's point. There's so much joy in the work that I do. So every time you expand the community, every time you connect energies, I, I think about energies rather than network, right? I connect energies. I kind of think my my universe or our universe, you know, expand. And and it's in that expansion, you know, I I I see, you know, a full decolonization possible. So talking about white supremacy, I, I just think we tackle so many other things. So I just want to mention, you know, there are all these issues that we work with, right? Um, byproduct of white supremacy, you know, include racism, include settled colonialism, include uh, patriarchy, you know, include material uh, sexism, so on and so forth. So, but then we network. Okay, maybe network is not a good word, but I we build communities. We yes. uh, grow our universe, and and in doing so, 
I do it with such a joy as a shovan that mm. I I just stop seeing the difference between work and life, which may not be such a good thing. Oh yes. I think often we forget when there's suffering, there's also joy. And throughout all this work, no matter which sector of the work you're focusing on, the, the true resistance is maintaining joy throughout suffering, throughout oppression. It's maintaining happiness, showing up to spaces meaningfully, intentionally happy. And that is sometimes our truest forms of resistance. And because it's Women History Month, and also this should be a conversation outside of this month, I think about my role as a male, right? And the privilege I maintain in rooms, even as a male of color. And I have seen that even witnessing my female counterparts in the same room as me, right? I have been in meetings where I have heard wonderful ideas come out of my female counterparts. And no one listens, no one bats an eye. And then I repeat it and, oh, Jamil, that's such a great idea. Oh, but such and such said that. Oh, really? I didn't hear, you know, the little microaggressions. Oh, I didn't notice. Oh, you absolutely noticed, but you ignored. And so I think about even those small interactions and what does that mean for women in higher education, their treatment in the workplace, their maintenance of dignity, right? So. How can men be a true ally or practice what I think to say allyship? Because ally is not this badge you get. You have to practice it every day. Um, so what are some ways you think people can practice that true allyship, not just this month, but all the months? Hmm. I think that one thing that could happen, are we talking about at the university or in general? I would say both, right? Yes. On this level here, but also outside of the university. Um, one thing I would say is I'd love to see... Uh, more men dominate at the university level in committees that are catering to issues specifically related to women. Hmm. I think, I mean, some of this is just about how people are socialized, right? And so mm -hmm. I've, I've gotten to the point where I've come to realize that we cannot get mad at individual men sure. for sexism if we're not going to condemn the entire system because people know what they know. But I, one thing I always think is that, you know, a woman doesn't have to be someone's wife or someone's daughter or someone's mm. sister in order to qualify for respect. And so I think well, I'm happy to say that I think that the next generation is doing a lot mm. of good, good work around that. When I look at the, the teenagers and the folks younger than them, I think they're doing a lot to be gender inclusive and like, all that kind of stuff. So, it's true. Um, you know, and it's, it's a generational issue. So I think, think those are two things um, to, to see women as individuals and not attached to other men. I think it's also important for us to sort of, you know, everyone's going to have a different idea about, um, about morality. But one thing that the tragedy that happened um, in Atlanta on Tuesday brought to mind for me was just like, we need to quit the respectability mm -hmm. conversations mm. around what women have to be. Because if you're, you're like me, and I think Trisha, you can attest to this, you're an academic, right? I also happen to be married. I, I also happen to be in a heterosexual relationship. It's very respectable. Also, yes. I also happen right. to have, right. All mm. these things make me someone that people, and it doesn't happen often anymore because I correct it, but people would love to, particularly when I was a little bit younger, getting into my career, co compare me to women who aren't like me. Stop comparing women who you deem to be respectable to women who you don't. Yep. That is not helpful. Mm. And women who are feminists and are, are, are girls, girls, as I like to call it, <laughs> Um, we don't appreciate it and it's not helpful. And all it does is perpetuate this idea that only certain women are deserving of respect. It does, yeah. women are not impressed by that at all. Mm. <laughs> I, I mm. want to, I'd like to tell people I'm nobody's wife, nobody's mother. Mm. And, you know, that's not original. I'm not, I'm not being original because I'm borrowing from Sandra Cisneros byline, you know. Mm. Um, I, agree with Siobhan. I'd like to see uh, more that when it comes to uh, uh, women's issues, that it's not just women advocating for it, uh, uh, women talking about it, analyzing it. Likewise, when it, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, race work, it's not just, um, you know, people of color, you know, gathering space, talking about it. 
what I do see very absent, uh, both at Southern and elsewhere, is the um, uh, white cis male in the anti-racist uh, and uh, and anti-sexist work. It's mm. just not seen a whole lot. At the same time, I'm also uh, taking your question, Jamel, in a way that I think allyship is allies' work. So not for us to tell them what to do. They mm. need to do their own work. I, and I'm, I... I'm, I'm trying to be an ally myself. I'm, I, you know, you know, I'm privileged in so many ways. I need to learn about what it, what is like to be an indigenous person, right? And losing your, your nation, losing your language, losing your land, and having constantly to tell people and justify your existence, what that is like, right? So I'm learning, trying to be that ally I need to be. So, so to your question, I, um, you know, in my head, I right away think of a few colleagues of ours. They're all very well-intentioned um, male people. They're, they're men, and I, I don't know, you know, if I tell them what to do, I don't think that they will be that they will be followed really, really well. Hmm. I like that point that you bring up. I think a lot of us are trying to like be activists for our own communities while also trying to show allyship to others. And I, I do, to a large extent, think men should have a lot of responsibility of fixing the issues, right, that we have created, right? Taking ownership of that. And like how you said, Siobhan, entering, doing that committee work, right? Being the majority there and dedicated to solving some of the inequalities in which we have nowadays. So I really like that you bring that up. Maybe it's for us to think about and reflect on. Um, amongst ourselves and then come up with some solutions. So that's a very solid point. I just wanted to add. And I'll say as, as someone who is new, more newly a man, like Jamil, you've been a man longer than I have. Um, when, when I transitioned, I, I gained at least 50 IQ points. Um, so I don't have the experience of being challenged and I'm, I'm not even kidding. I got so much smarter. Um, and also I, I got more important and people were more interested in what I had to say. And it's funny and it surprises me still constantly. Um, and talk about respectability. I did not used to be particularly respectable as a visibly queer person. Um, but now just what I see reflected back at me is, is different and it's painful, honestly, because it's, you know, I know the experience that I had before as a white, you know, visibly, gender non-conforming person and all the people who I love and care deeply about um, who are never have had the experience of being treated as a full human being um, in this way. And it, you know, we also, Jamil and I have talked about how for both of us, all of our mentors have been women. And I think about the whole, the whole system. So, I mean, the people who mentor you in school, the people who mentor you after school, um, the people who make sure that, you know, on campus or otherwise, like you have something to eat, like the caretaking work um, that our students are especially needing right now, um, emotional and otherwise caretaking work, that really does fall to women, which I guess takes us back to the invisible labor piece. But I could see, you know, it, it just seems like men have the option to not do that work and not be seen negatively. Whereas women, I think, get criticized when they don't engage in that kind of work. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I would say that that happens on the at the university level, but it happens out in the world. Um, you know, men or women may be single mothers or fathers, but whenever there's a single father, there's a question about what did the mother do? Where right. is she? Is she this horrible person? Why doesn't she have full custody of the children? Right? Um, versus we don't ask those same questions the other way around. Um, uh, but I wanted to make a point, Trisha, to your point, you said you're not a mother. I have to disagree. You've mothered me. Mm. Mm. You are one of my mentors. Mothering Mother is, is a verb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've mothered countless folks. So yes, you're absolutely a mother. You may not have given birth to a child mm. physically, but that doesn't mean you, you, you birthed me as a 10 year old <laughs> associate professor. <laughs> So I just wanted to make that point about mentoring and 
and mothering. Don't make me cry. I mean, that. <laughs> I, 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 I really, you give me way too much credit, but seriously, thank you. I, I learn all the time, you know, the, the mentoring goes both ways. No, but Trisha shows up, you show up, you show up. You have not worked. You haven't once not showed up for me since the moment I stepped foot on this campus. And I know I'm not the only one. And I got your phone number. So <laughs> sometimes you're showing up in the middle of the night, right? I mean, that's just how it is. So. <laughs> no, no, we, we, we show up for each other. We do, we do. Uh, and I have to say that is why I kind of think my universe is really very expansive. And gender non-conforming, <laughs> expensive. <laughs> it's, it, it, I can go everywhere, and I know um, wherever I go, that you know, th th I carry the people that matter so much to me, um, like all of you here, in my heart. You know. I think that's such a beautiful thing, right? That sense of unity on a college campus, and also just outside of a university setting that sense of belonging, that sense of security, and knowing that others have your back, even when spaces don't always look like they do, I think is a really strong point when you're talking about diversity in higher education, of how people of color will hold each other down. And so on that note, when we're talking about unity, often, I think we all know this, our work is done in silos. You know, they're done behind closed doors, amongst a very small group of people, where that same work may be happening across campus and no one knows. And so I think about often what is ways in which we, as people of color, as allies, how can we form a coalition, right? How can we stop working in silos and start having these conversations at larger levels, right? Networking and sharing energy, as Trisha says, as one. Um, do you have any recommendations for that? I know one thing that I heard recently that was hasn't happened yet, um, but I know, and this is just one organization and one way of going about doing it, but the Black Student Union wanted to um, bring Black faculty together to show up to a um, virtual meeting hmm. so that students can know who we are. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if it's just you have a place in your phone in your notes section where you jot down a couple names so that you know who you can reach out to. Um, I think that the students of color in general really, really do need that. It'd be nice maybe if, if, if the students wanted to invite us even to, to certain meetings so that they know who's there, uh, whether they're trying to reach out to faculty of color, queer faculty, women faculty, um, because the students, so I always feel like we're underutilized sometimes mm. as faculty members by the students specifically. No, no, let's be clear. The university. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> let's be clear. Let's be clear. The university gets its use. But I feel like in terms of faculty, students led specifically uh, organizations and, and, and uh, events that they could they could utilize us more. Hmm. I've I've mentioned something very similar. Like a couple almost times. that exact same thing, Jamil. Almost that exact same thing of just grabbing all the emails of the Black faculty and throwing us in a Zoom meeting. And maybe it's that simple because I also don't think students realize how many of you they are, even though in the grand scheme of the university in terms of our student population, the representation's off. But I did not know the names of so many people of color faculty until a year ago. Right, until I was super engaged in this work and reaching out to folks and saying, hey, have you had a black professor? What, what was their name? What department? Looking at the directory. If I didn't do that kind of research, I would have never known. Mm -hmm. And so I think having that experience from students would be so powerful, but also for faculty, right? How can we be here for each other? I think about often because the conversation a lot of times is how can we be there for students in terms of faculty to students? But how can students also support faculty in the classroom, outside the classroom? It kind of should be more of a partnership, I think of it as. Yes, I definitely um, echo that. That uh, so our students do not know how to be greedy here at Southern. That is um, so true. You know, yes. I, I have thought elsewhere, um, Definitely, they know how to be aggressive with faculty. <laughs> they know how to demand. And our students, right. I think, 
probably coming from, you know, the culture, they, they just think, okay, I, I do my work. My professors would not know me. And so very often I get introductions in the email that always yes. baffle me. I know them after the first after the first class. I know every single person. But really? I just did this yesterday. Three classes yeah. later, I know who you are very well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, they, you know, it, it is part of the culture, maybe. I, but I definitely didn't get that when I was a CUNY. I didn't get that when I taught elsewhere. Definitely, definitely not at Barnard. Students, they, they, they demand to be known, right? So um, our students, I, I shouldn't say not all students, some students definitely know how to approach faculty, but, but I think a, a good part of our students, because they're so busy with, with life, with work, with mm -hmm. um, just keeping up with the school work. Um, I, I definitely agree with Siobhan in that regard. Back to silo um, comment, yes. Um, we work in silo, but this real talk podcast is in a way kind of breaking down the silo, I mm. think. Um, I also say not all silos are bad, right? Mm, I that's mean, very true. That we also don't want, I mean, if we want everything in one place, what does that mean? Do we lose our agency to go on to do some work? that that we see important do we need to report to one entity but but definitely i see pros and cons i think there needs to be more conversations uh, across entities I, I definitely see the university itself not just southern alone i think higher education institution is set up to uh, put people in silos so yeah. you have academic affairs, you have student affairs, you have, you have uh, facilities folks. It's like a, we, we're in ranks. And, and so there are awesome, awesome people in facilities, but I never had a chance to meet them mm. unless something just happened, right? And, and likewise with uh, student affairs folks, I know some very well just because of the WGS work I do so many I don't. And there are also um, biases, I should say perceptions we hold uh, against each other. Well, they're faculty, right? Faculty always behave like this. Or we would say, well, wintergreen folks, right? Oh, you know, anyway, so I think we need to do more, um, more work, resistance work to that kind of uh, institutionalization of our work mm. to break down that kind of siloing that is very unproductive. I feel like I'm sitting here learning so much about my own experience, just talking to you two, because I've been sitting here really thinking about how students, you know, aren't greedy. What does that mean? What does that look like? It had me sitting here reflecting on my own college experience since I'm the only student sitting here. And I could remember from when I first got here in 2016, right? A first generation, first in the family to graduate high school. And you're sitting in this space and you are just grateful to be in this space. Yep. And you're like really careful not to take up too much space. You don't want to ask for too much because you feel like it's a mistake you're even here in the first place. So you don't want to be too loud before somebody notice. I can recall that feeling. But then I can recall, a because I, I would say I'm probably one of the students, I'm probably a little bit more greedy with my faculty. I think, I think some of my faculty would probably say that. Sure. Jamil, you're um, doing it right. You're doing it right. Yeah. Um, I always knew in order for me to succeed, I needed my faculty. I needed my faculty. I would go to office hours relentlessly. I would talk about their work, my work, my school work, the paper I'm writing, notes. I would visit professors that I had taken semesters ago to see how they're doing, to tell them how I'm doing. I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go. It just goes down the whole hallway. Oh, I do. I do. Door by door. And. Yeah. I want to just talk about really quickly for in terms of students that are listening. As I'm leaving Southern, one of the most valuable things I'm taking with me is my relationships with my faculty members. One of the most impactful things 
of my entire Southern experience. You know, more impactful than most of the things I have done at Southern. My relationships I have made with faculty won't be over when I graduate, right? A lot of things is going to end when I leave Southern, but my relationship with faculties will always stay, right? I've met faculty that have cared about me, that have loved me, that has helped me start internships and independent studies and pouring resources into me and cared about me as more than a college student, but as a person, which I will forever be grateful for, especially my faculty of color have poured so much into me. Um, a lot of times women faculty of color have poured so much into me over the years. So deeply grateful for that. Um, so for students that are listening, please be greedy with professors, go see them. I think that's a beautiful point to stand on. And Jamil, if I may, you know, when I said earlier this point about student underutilizing us, I think part of it is, I, I think I meant that in the sense of, of two things. One, using us as resources to connect them to other things on campus. I give that whole spiel my first day of class. But the other point was the point that you made about asking faculty members about their work. Mm -hmm. I've worked with several student organizations that are, uh, they'll be struggling to put it together a program. And I'm like, you have, you know, two faculty members on this campus who deal specifically with that issue, bring them in as experts. We're not just teachers, we're scholars. Um, and so I think that is something that um, I just wanted to touch on in terms of, and then that, that helps you later on too, I think, um, particularly if you're thinking about going into graduate school or oh, yes. furthering your work in a particular field where that, that um, professor can be of assistance to you. I mean, we love that. We love it. We do we love want that. You to come back. Are you kidding me? I love it. When I get an email or somebody pops up at the office door, it's just a, the best feeling. So, yeah. I think students forget that professors are experts outside of educating, right? They are experts in their field. We have professors with PhDs that have lifelong research on so many topics mm -hmm. that you may have no clue of if you didn't ask them. And I think students are unaware of that, but I'm so glad you bring that up because that helps us identify ways to create less siloing, right? If I know that a faculty of mine is, research is based in health inequities, and I'm having a program about health inequities, I could bring that professor from public health over, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to do a BSU program, um, Black History, I can bring someone from the history department who researches that by themselves. Maybe I wouldn't know from the course catalog, but if I had a conversation with some of these professors about what the things they're deeper in, I could reach out and bring them in. And I think that's true for so many different disciplines. And so with that being said, uh, we talked about, you know, how we can create less silos. Sometimes it's good to have silos, but even thinking about creating less silos, what does that necessarily look like? Like, how can we actually do that in practice? Jamil, let me add something to that. Go ahead, go ahead. So, um... I mean, this is what we're trying to do with this podcast is, is really sort of shake things up, um, open up conversations and connect people, connect this energy. Um, but Siobhan, something that you said recently has had me thinking about this, how we're part of this educational ecosystem and how even just thinking about Jamil, like you said, students are coming in, they don't have a sense of themselves as belonging, um, but they're the product, most of them, of Connecticut public education. Uh, the school systems uh, in the state. And then we are training most of those teachers, many of those teachers at Southern, and then they're going back into the to the ecosystem. So we're, we really, um, shifts that we can make at Southern can have a, an impact on that whole system that would really um, have a big impact. And likewise, you know, K-12, any shifts that are happening there really can impact us at Southern too. So what can we do to, you know, shift the current? Well, I think that goes back to a question Jamil was asking about what students could, could students could even do. Mm. And, and, and two things come to mind for me. One is in order to make this university what you want it to be, students need to demand what is necessary. So I yes. know there was an issue a couple of years ago, the BSU got together and demanded more uh, faculty of color to match the demographics of the university, right? this power is in the students' hands to, yes. to make that happen. Because we can ask what we want as faculty. They're going to say, whatever, what are you worried about? You know, you do what you got to do, right? But it is important because we train so many of the teachers at Southern mm -hmm. that we're, I'm sorry, the teachers in the state of Connecticut, that Southern is doing a good job at making sure that they walk out the door with a well-rounded understanding of 
all of those key points in our tier one and tier two, you know, program, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing too, I, I have to, I can't stress this enough, and I think it does come, Jamil, with our students feeling um, less entitled than they ought to. Mm -hmm. And part of that is like, it is okay for you to challenge us as long as it's an educated challenge. Yes. Students don't come to office hours and don't challenge because they feel a level of deference. And mm -hmm. yes, you should have a certain level of, of, of deference, I suppose, to someone who's teaching you something, but not, not so much so that you are quiet and you don't let what you think to be a different perspective out. Your student, your classmates need to hear it. I need to hear it. We need to hear it in all kinds of ways. And that's how we learn. Because you know, we're we might be these very open-minded folks who are anti-racist and who are, you know, fighting for all kinds of equity, but that doesn't mean that we have the perspective of a million people. We need mm -hmm. to hear your perspective to help shape how we're gonna continue to teach mm -hmm. this class. So it's like learning from each other. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And and more than learning from each other, I think students students have a lot of power agency they have oh, a yeah. lot they can demand more than oftentimes faculty I, I need to point that out even though we're salaried students are not um so i can say i would not be where i am without students student movement of the 60s 70s right the wgs you know ethnic studies that, that's where my work intersects right the uh, race, gender, and 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 um, you know social economic issues. I I couldn't. I mean, I would not have been able to do the kind of scholarship and uh, and teaching that I do today without the students' work. And I think uh, students today not their own fault, but that there's been sort of um, decades of uh, work trying to produce well-behaved students. Mm -hmm. I think there's something to be said about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I have said this on other platforms and I will say this here. SCSU lights are on because of students. SCSU exists for the sole purpose of educating students. Mm -hmm. What we do at our community in terms of how it looks, how it feels, how we are educated, what is the curriculum, what are the requirements, what are the services at SCSU exist for the sole purpose of serving students. And I say this because I think often students forget that power in their voice and what they are allowed to say and do and advocate for. SCSU is a business. Schools, colleges are businesses. They are here to serve you. You are paying tuition. You are paying room and board to go to a university for a product, a product being a degree. So do not ever be shy of contacting your professor, contacting administrators, and asking about the things you paid for, asking about the services you want to see. Whatever SESU will be in two years, four years, 10 years, well, Honestly, be on the backs of students. That culture, how the campus feel, how vibrant, whether the clubs and orgs are booming or not booming, that will be on students. Students get to shape the culture at SCSU. And so especially to the new students that are listening, you know, to the underclassmen, the first years, the second years, even if you are an untraditional age student, you have especially a lot of power because you have time left, right? You have so much time to build stuff up. So if you want to see a program, if you want to see a certain a difference in departments, if you want to see a difference in resources, if you want to see more faculty of color, which we've been talking about every episode, every episode. I'm gonna keep talking. About, I'm gonna keep talking about it too. Every episode, you have to demand that change. Mm -hmm. Every civil rights movement have been led by college age students, people that are 19, 20, 21, 22, that are fearless right? You're fearless at this age because we have the time, we have the capacity to do it, and we can do it. And that does not change at SESU. We have the capacity to do better and be better, and we will be better. So I just wanted to put that there um, for perspective that students are listening, something for them to think about. But something we have asked every guest, and you two are no different. And your radical imagination, you know, think about the most radical thoughts you can have 
in terms of SCSU, what does it look like if you can choose? If you can dream, what mm. does it look like? Wow. Uh, seriously, I will, I was, I don't know how radical this is, but I want every one of us faculty treat our students the way that I see faculty treat the students at Barnard, at the Vassar. Mm -hmm. The students were just precious. Mm -hmm. And our students are precious, but our students very often don't know that and our, our not all our colleagues cherish our students the same way i would like to see a whole different universe doesn't matter you you come to southern for free you pay a few thousand dollars or your international students or other state students pay a little bit more you should be treated as if you were paying hundred thousand dollars coming to southern mm and your future, everyone's future matters because it does, absolutely does. Every single day, I just say that's how I, how I look at everyone. I would like to see um, enough coverage for us to make sure that we are um, getting at all the issues that we need to in terms of content for the teachers and nurses and social workers that we're training. I'd love to see some more vibrant ethnic studies uh, yeah. minors. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to see um, funds. I'm sure they're there perhaps, but maybe we need to bring it to the fore. Funds earmarked for us to bring more scholars to the university. One thing I try to do is, um, mm -hmm. when, especially when I'm teaching my graduate courses, if I'm assigning a book, I try to bring the, if I'm a friend with the faculty, the faculty member at another university, I try to bring them in because I want our students oh, wow. to have access to, oh yeah, mm -hmm. I'm having three in my graduate course this semester. Bring folks in. If we're, re if we're reading your work, you can make time mm. to talk to my students if they bought your book. Um, mm. It'd be nice to have a little bit more of that here as well, because we are, we are training so many folks who are going to go out and do good work in the state. Um, and the more access that they have to, um, scholars in the field, the better, better off they'll be. That's what I'd like to see. Those two things seem actually quite, you know, within, within reach, like within our, our capacity to enact. Um, and, you know, as we're coming to the end of our, our time, we, I, we can't leave without talking about the upcoming Women's and Gender Studies Conference. Oh, yes. Speaking of vibrancy and invited scholars and opportunities for students for free at Southern to attend. So, Trisha Siobhan. Gosh, I, I've been dreaming. I've been actually um, working on this conference for the last four and a half years. Wow. So, uh, the conference theme was set in 2016. Wow. Supposedly, the conference should happen in 2018, but I was on sabbatical. I was on Fulbright. Mm. So 2020, it couldn't happen. We, we do it every other year. So in 2020, you know what happened. April 2020, everything got washed out because of COVID. So this is a uh, conference deferred, you know, a dream that's going to be materialized finally four and a half years later. But it is going to be a conference with so, so, so many dazzling, brilliant energies, right? And Siobhan, you may be able to just talk about a few things that you were actually helping with and you know intimately. Yeah, so the, the Women's Agenda Studies Conference at Southern is always amazing. I always meet the best people who I stay in contact with forever. Um, but we, we incorporate a few different things to make it even more exciting since it's going to be virtual. Uh, we have um, spoken word artists coming. We're having um, recipes that are going to be provided as well as uh, chefs who are going to come in and do demos. We're having um, a couple of plenary sessions. One of them is going to be on um, uh, to celebrate activists on the local, national, and international levels. 
Um, we're having uh, yoga. So there's there's so much for students, and this is an addition. This is an addition to the amazing panels that we're going to have, where all kinds of community activists, artists, scholars, grad students, and faculty are mm -hmm. going to be coming together to present their work. And so I we really encourage uh, Southern students to to register. Yeah, I believe and, and for free. For free, I would just say quickly. Our two keynotes are just incredible. You know, they together have over a century of activist scholarship work. That over a century. So, uh, Margot Okazawa Ray and uh, Loretta Ross. And Margot Okazawa Ray is one of the um, the original members of Gombahi River Collective that penned a black feminist. Black feminist statement. Uh, Loretta Ross has been working on reproductive justice forever, and she's the one that gave us the term reproductive justice. Oh and wow! She framed it from the white supremacist perspective, and she doesn't just talk about this individual reproductive justice, but place it on the systemic level. She's known for her work, and she actually taught. Uh, she's taught this course on white supremacy. It's one of the, the hardest courses um, on the campus of Smith. <laughs> and we have two plenaries. Our plenary, uh, one is on making art, crafting justice, where we bring uh, artists and the art practitioners from all around, local, global, and uh, national. And then uh, the one that Chauvin is, um, co-organizing is called Portraits of Justice, Movers and Shakers of uh, Social Movements. We will have literally founding member, uh, you know, mem founding members of movements, including indigenous mm -hmm. movements from Canada called I Don't Know More, and the um, really mother of women's movements in Chile, going to be speaking from Santiago, Chile. And we're going to have uh, our, um, you know, Black Lives Matter New Haven leader, Ala Ochumare, uh, speaking as well. Likewise, Asian American uh, trans activist Pauline Park will be speaking. So, I mean, it's going to be fun. There will, there will be dance. There will be yes. dance. There will be joy, and there will be resistance. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, thank you both so, so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure and joy always. Very much. Thank I... you so much, Casey. Thank you so much, Jamel. And Chauvin, we will be talking soon, I know. <laughs> yes, yes. And thank you.